Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome into Crossed Up, ladies and gentlemen. We have a very special episode for you guys today. Uh, Bob Wankel and I have been ta- tossing around the idea of bringing on some some former Phillies to join us on the program to kind of take talk us through their careers uh, while we're waiting for baseball to figure out what the hell's going on with with itself at this point. And we are fortunate today to be joined by one of the members of the 2008 World Champion Phillies. Brett Myers. Brett, thanks for joining us here on the program. We really appreciate having you. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, the first question we wanted to ask is, is you know, about growing up in, in Jacksonville. Um, can, you, can you talk about your introduction to the sport of baseball? I mean, were there any other sports that you played that you really enjoyed as a kid and consider pursuing? I mean, I know, I know Wikipedia page mentioned you were an amateur boxer as a teenager, but was that ever a serious path or did, or did you, you know, what was well, that? I guess uh, my dad was doing the boxing, I guess, when I was around four or so. And I remember my uncle taking me to the ball field and uh, trying out for T-ball. And I wasn't, um, like, into the game as much. You know, I was uh, – my dad was promoting boxing. I think I remember at the time he was in Italy at the time when I was four. And my uncle took me to try to those tryouts and stuff. And I really didn't uh, expect myself to end up falling in love with the game at early age of seven, I guess. I was uh, really passionate about it and wanting to uh, make it to the big leagues and stuff like that. And, and uh, uh, it was a dream of mine. I remember telling my dad when I was seven um, that uh, that's what I wanted to do when I grew up, um, play professional baseball. And uh, he told me one in a million makes it. And I told him, well, why can't I be that one? So the the drive there was was from an early age at seven. I mean, it's every child's dream, childhood dream to play professional sports. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I just I wouldn't I wouldn't quit until I did make it. And the boxing uh, was there at early age too. And uh, my dad just basically made the decision probably when I was twelve, thirteen years old that uh, he didn't like seeing me get hit and. Uh, he said he's going to go pursue baseball or, you know, just focus on that. And uh, I know that in these days and times, a lot of people want kids to play multiple sports and stuff, but I didn't, I didn't care about any other sport. I mean, I could play any other sport that I wanted, but I was 24 seven baseball because I had that passion and dream to make it to the big leagues. And I felt like that if I played another sport, it was take, taking away from my, uh, you know, honing in my skills to become a professional baseball player. Now, pitchers, pitchers aren't exclusively pitchers when they're growing up, right? So where else, where else did you play? Were you good at another position? And when did you know that pitching was going to be the path that you wanted to pursue? Well, I mean, I played every position on the field. Um, you know, high school, mostly I played first and right field. Um, but I used to catch. I used to play third, short, second. I mean, everywhere on the field. I was just a – I wanted to be the best baseball player possible. And I practiced – every single day. I mean, I remember my dad screaming at me about throwing, we had a, you know, concrete block house and I would be out there with a tennis ball and it was 
right up against his room and I'd be out there till streetlights came on or when dinner was ready, just throwing a tennis ball off to the wall and trying to, you know, act like I was feeling ground balls and, and uh, keep working on my hands and my skills and stuff. And, and uh, <clears throat> I always love hitting. I mean, I still love hitting to this day, but uh, you know, obviously, and I mean, through high school and everything, I was a pretty good hitter. I was actually a all American first baseman instead of a pitcher my senior year, which was kind of strange, but um, cause I didn't make it anywhere hitting, but uh, I, I loved hitting and, and uh, it's, it, that's a fun part of the game. And, and I really, I liked pitching as well, but I think probably towards, you know, early, probably my freshman year, I was a PO, I guess they would say pitcher only because I was a young kid or whatever. But as my high school career, you know, kept, you know, going year to year, I became a, a really solid hitter. And uh, when you, when you get drafted, it's, you don't get to see live pitching until probably double A, triple A. And those are, those times are very scarce because you play teams that are, you, if you play in your home park and they're a national league team, then you'll hit kind of the same with their park. But most of the teams that we played were American league teams. But with that being said too, your day had to line up for you to pitch against them to hit. So, I didn't get to see too many 95 mile an hour fastballs before I got to the big leagues and trying to make that adjustment without hitting for three years or two and a half years was, is not easy to do. You can take as many reps as you want in the cage and have your swing honed in. But once they start throwing that ball 95, 96 miles an hour on the black, it's kind of like, uh, all right, I'm a pitcher. I get it. Right. I, I have a question. So when you were going through your high school career, obviously you had a lot of success and you were at what, Englewood High School? Is that correct? Yep, Englewood High so School. Yep. When did it become obvious or did it become evident that not only is baseball going to possibly be reality for you, but that you had a chance to be a first round pick? Like, was that before your junior year or was it a little bit later in the process? Like, what was really, that whole thing like? I really, I really don't know. Uh, I was trying to. Uh, I just went out there and competed. I, I was. It, my goal was to play in the big leagues. I didn't really, I didn't really think about that too much. I don't think. Um, but I th probably when I got my first letter from a college, my junior year, I kind of. It was, it was from University of Miami saying that hey, you know, we'd like for you to come for a visit or blah blah blah, whatever it said in there. And and then the following year, <clears throat> like I, I wanted to go to Florida State. I was a Florida State fan growing up. And, and uh, I, I, my senior year, I sent them a letter and say, hey, why are you guys not interested in me? Why haven't you sent me a letter? And they're like, you're not going to come here. You're going to be a first rounder. And I didn't really think of it that way, you know. And then when agents and everything start coming in and talking to you and scouts and stuff like that, that's probably when it kind of set in a little more my senior year when they could actually contact me and talk to me. So, but before all that stuff, I was just trying to get better and, uh, you know, be a complete baseball player. But, you know, as my velocity got, you know, kept elevating year in and year out, you know, from my freshman year to my senior year, it kept getting stronger and stronger and I kept getting stronger. Then I kind of knew at that point in time that that was probably my only shot to get drafted. Um, but I also had dreams to go play to be a, a pitcher and a hitter at the university of Florida when, it, where I signed to go end up playing, go to college. But, uh, you know, when you go in the first round, it's, you should go take that and, and, um, you know, start your professional career.
So uh, last week, I don't know if you follow this or not, but the Phillies took a high school pitcher. His name is Mick Abel uh, with the 15th overall pick. You obviously come out. You're the 12th overall pick. Can you talk a little bit about making the jump from being a high school pitcher to professional baseball? Was there anything that jumped out that was particularly challenging to you or that you maybe weren't ready for? Like, what does this kid have in store for him over the next couple well, of years? The, one of the hardest things is you grow up at home and everything's – you're comfortable and, and uh, you got friends, you got family there for you, and you, and you know, I guess for me more – it was more of a routine than I, that I was adjusted to. But when you get thrown out there at 18 years old and you're sitting in a hotel room with a roommate and, and it's Groundhog Day every day and the only thing you got to worry about is getting to the field early and getting all your work in and stuff. I mean, I know times have changed since I came through the system, but um, – it's uh, it's an adjustment trying to be away. If you might get a little homesick and stuff like that, and I know I was at 18 years old coming out, and uh, you know, but luckily I was in Clearwater and it was I wasn't too far from home, so I could have friends and family come down and support me or whatnot. But uh, it, that was a tough adjustment, you know, out on your own, paying your own bills for the first time, and and everything like that, and and trying to trying to get better. But one of the things I probably could remember is you know in high school. If you're throwing, you know, 96 to 98 miles an hour, those kids don't have a shot. Numbers are good. You go play in Gulf Coast League where they sent me, and you're throwing, you know, 95 to 98, and they're putting that stuff in the parking lot. So, because, you know, they're they're just as good as you. So, that made me want to work harder because uh, you don't play against that competition in high school. And uh, you just try to, try to get better and better and, and hone your skills in and, you know, work on hitting location because location wasn't a big deal when you're in high school. Now, like I said, times have changed a lot now with all the travel ball stuff going on and kids playing on better teams and the perfect game stuff that's going on is uh, they're playing against better competition. So they're probably a little more polished coming out of high school than, than I was. So what goes into actually refining pitches? So like I coach at the high school level and we talk about kids like trying to get them to develop a change up. And, and the biggest thing is just getting them to attempt to throw it, you know, because they don't have a feel for that as a sophomore or junior at the high school level. When you right. get to the professional baseball, you obviously are going to physically dominate everybody at the high school level. But so what actually goes into refining and, and developing your skills as a pitcher to make that next step? Like what well, does that process was, uh... look like? At a high school, I mean, I had three pitches, but I had two plus pitches. Um, the changeup always kind of eluded me. Uh, I don't know. They're like trust the grip and everything, but I'm like I'm throwing it three miles an hour slower than my fastball. I don't know how to. I don't know how to do it. So I tried and tried and you know messed around with every different grip. And probably I'd say 2010 is when I really found a changeup. I mean that that was 11 years of playing pro ball and I still couldn't figure out a changeup. And then I finally found a, a grip and a mentality of how to throw it and when to throw it and stuff like that was the biggest issue for me. So once, and, and I really learned a, a cutter in 2005 when I was in the big leagues that, that kind of gave me that other pitch instead of just being a fastball curveball guy. And uh, that helped me out a lot, helped me with my location and my fastball. And more than anything, you know, I've, I've had, I had good coaching through the system and, uh, the Phillies really took care of their their guys, you know, and and uh, put them with the right people to help them help us understand different philosophies and how to how to pitch to hitters and what counts to do certain things in. But every day is a learning process. No matter if you're in the big leagues or not, you can be the best of the best, but 
every year it changes, you know, like say if they got all this video and I go out there in 05, develop a cutter. Nobody knew I had one. And then through the whole year I pitched well, you know, then the next year it's another adjustment. Where can I throw this? How do I throw this pitch? You know, it's, it's always, it's always an adjustment out there. You can't just go out there and keep repeating the same um, sequences and everything like that, because you can't even repeat the same sequences in one game. So it's kind of working with your catcher and trying to figure out ways to get these guys out because they're the best of the best and you have to try to be the best of the best. But the hardest thing I would say that comes along with that pitching is getting, trying to remember the hitters, how they're, if they're setting you up or how you get them out, you know, you got to try to pitch to your strengths, but at the same time, don't give in in key situations. So there's a lot of focus that goes on in trying to, I guess, trick the hitters. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not as easy unless you have dominating stuff that day, which happens probably five times, five, six times out of 30, 30 something starts. You don't always have your best stuff out there. So that's difficult. That's, that's the time you really have to learn how to pitch and, and, um, you know, you might not be, you might not have your velocity that day to say like the last start. It's, it's just a lot, of, a lot of stuff that goes into understanding what's working that day and what's not and uh, trying to, trying to get early outs. Cause my biggest problem in my career when I was throwing hard was uh, trying to strike everybody out. And I had coaches tell me that strikeouts are overrated. I'm like, no, they're not. They look good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh but then you know then I got like a hundred pitches through five innings and they're pulling me out of the game and I'm I'm ticked off because I don't like get pulled out of games right I feel fine leave me out there but what they're trying to do is save your arm for the next one it's not about that one you know but the way I took it was don't take this ball out of my hand until I tell you well, I'll give you a game where, where where you had a great game, and that's your actual major league debut, which took place at Wrigley Field. That which has yeah. to be pretty cool, right? You went yeah. eight you went eight innings, only allowed two hits and one run, uh, and you got you got the win. But I, I guess the the question we have to ask about that is, you know, what do you remember about it? But uh, if you go through the ninth inning, when they, if you know you get taken out, Jose Mesa comes in, he gets the first two outs, then Sosa hits a homer, Alou and McGriff get singles. Corey Patterson comes up and you're like, Oh my God, I'm this, we might blow this. Do you, do you remember oh, yeah. that? Was that an uneasy moment for you? <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was very uneasy moment. Um, and, uh, I was, I remember sitting on the bench over there going, gosh, dang, don't let this happen. You know, like, come on, give me the first one at least, you know? And, uh, but yeah, it, I mean, and that was pretty much the downfall for the Cubs the rest of my career. Cause I, for some reason could have my worst stuff and they could never hit me. I don't, I don't know why or what it is, but uh, I've always pitched well against the Cubs from that point on, and I was always good in Wrigley. And that's a, like a tough place to pitch with that wind and everything. But um, that was one of the highlights of my career. Just, you know, it's always good to, for your first one. But, I mean, I grew up watching the Cubs on TV, on WGN, every day when I got home from school. And then I'd watch the Braves at night on TBS. That was the only two baseball games we actually could watch on TV. So I was, I, I always wanted to go to Wrigley field and, and come to find out my first start's going to be in Wrigley. And I, we had a guy in AAA named Pete Zamora. We're sitting there and Mark Pryor made it to the big leagues quicker than I did. Um, he, I don't know what year draft he was, but it was definitely a few years after me, but college guy, you know, first rounder. 
And I remember Pete Zamora telling me that Mark Pryor was way better than me. And that's why he's there and I'm not, you know, pushing my buttons a little bit. He knew he could get under my skin because I, because I'm, I, he knew I'd be irritated about it. And, uh, but that only, that just drove me. It fueled me, you know, and then come to find out, I mean, he probably told me that two, three weeks before I got called up and uh, I got called up and I was kind of hoping that I was facing prior so I could shove it up Pete Zamora's ass and show him I was better than him. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's the way I felt when I got out there. You know, I'm like, I, I told Zamora, I said, I'm going against Pryor. We're going to find out who's better now, ain't we? You know? and, uh, awesome. But I took that as a challenge, you know. And if I've, I've always been that way. When somebody tells me that I can't do something, I'm going to show them that I can do it, you know. And you I won't strike stop me. You strike me as a confident guy, so I think I know the, the answer to this question, but the one thing that really jumped out at me is you go back to, to your first handful of starts when you come up in 02. You go at least seven innings, four out of your first five starts, throw a complete game, 124 pitches, and start five. I mean, did you expect to come up and, and to have that type of success? And, and not only that, but the way that you were utilized. I mean, in today's game, that would that would never happen in a million years. Like, did you embrace that or – like? Were you taken my goal, back by how you were used? No, my goal was every time I took the ball was to go nine innings. I mean, it's just – I mean, early it was – I was trying to go seven innings because every start that I had in high school, I finished the game. I started it, I finished it. We went seven innings, it's my game. Don't take the ball from me. I'm going to finish this. And that was my thought process when I got drafted. And when I went to games, I was – I remember in A-ball my first full season – I remember them pulling me out after six innings, and I just freaking dropped the ball and didn't hand. I mean, I was an ass. I, I just everybody that I, seriously, everybody that gotten everybody that talked to me or gotten my. I felt like they were all in my way for me trying to get to where I wanted to get. It wasn't. It was just a mentality I had. I'm like, I want out of here as quick as possible. Don't take me out of this game. I need to throw seven this game so I can move up to the next level. I wanted out of a ball after my first ten starts. I wanted to get to the big leagues as fast as I could. And I didn't understand the process because I did a lot of learning. You know, A-ball was – they wouldn't let me throw a breaking ball until I got two strikes. They wanted me to work on fastball location, which now I look back on it now and I'm going, they were right. I was just in a hurry. And I felt like I was wasting my time when I was in the minor leagues, wasting throws when I think I should be pitching the big leagues. I also thought this. I'm like, I throw just as hard as those big leaguers. Why, why shouldn't I be there already? But what I didn't know was it wasn't about how hard you throw it. It was about where you threw it. And I remember Will Clark telling me when I got drafted, and it kind of reminds me of like The Rock on WWE when somebody, he asks him a question and then they go to answer, and he goes, it doesn't matter. You know, and so Will Clark told me, he goes, I remember getting drafted and I was up there watching him take BP. And Will Clark goes, oh, you're the first rounder. How hard do you throw? And I went to go tell him. He goes, it doesn't matter. I can time a jet airplane. And I went, <laughs> I just, I, it was Will Clark. What am I supposed to say? You know, I was one of my idols. I loved Will Clark, you know, and, and that was, that was uh, one of my first introductions to the big leagues as an 18-year-old kid. And then I didn't know what he was talking about. And then, you know, you get older and you get more mature and you get around the game and you see what's happening and stuff like that, then you start to understand why I'm still telling this story, you yeah. know, from, from 20 years ago or whatever it is. And that's, that's something that 
that it always stick with me. So when I coach my kids and and these kids that you know they're on the on the teams and stuff from the organization, I try to let them in on those stories. My my game with the coaching stuff is more of a mental approach than it is a physical approach. And that's some of these some of these things these kids, as good as they are, they lack confidence. When and you think, when you first got up. Um, you know, 0304, you, you won 25 games those first two years. So you had some success pretty early on in your career, but it was a little up and down. Was it just a matter of kind of getting a feel for major league hitters and making that adjustment? Because 05, you break out. I mean, the strikeouts go way up. You're striking out almost a batter per inning. Well, was it the development of that third pitch yes. and just kind of learning? 100%. 100% development of a third pitch uh, catapulted me in 05 and 06. And um, – it it um it definitely made a difference for me because I was a two pitch guy, and some guys that that are, that are two pitch guys maybe my curveball is not working that day maybe I'm not spotting my fastball as well that day, and I need to rely on my second pitch a little bit more. Well, it's not hard if you're a professional hitter just to worry about two pitches, you know, and and that's and that it's a little bit of a struggle um, early in my career just to try to figure out how to get those guys out with two pitches that probably weren't always there and uh 05 learning the cutter was a big jump in my my numbers and 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 um you know it, it was just another pitch that could put in the back of their mind instead of just worrying about two pitches but I think I became a complete pitcher in 2010 when I developed my change up so I, then I had four pitches and that and I did it's kind of like I could go into that game and probably have three of them working if you have all four working, you're throwing a complete game and they ain't getting nothing off of you. Mm-hmm. But that, like I said, is very rare for that to happen. And it's nothing that you're not that you're doing, not putting in the work. It's just some days that it doesn't work. You know, we're human, and and but you know the guys that are really really good have their stuff working all the time, or they make it look like they got their stuff working because they know how to pitch. See, I came up, I was a thrower. I didn't know how to set hitters up or certain things and and uh you know getting around some of the other guys like kevin millwood and and um jamie moyer just to name a couple that have influenced giving me different ideas of how to get guys out and trusting that pitch in that location which throwing change-ups inside is i think is like the dumbest thing i've ever heard but Man, was it effective <laughs> so i, I want to talk a little bit about those teams um with you, Brett, because, you know, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, the early part of the 2000s, when, when the team was quote unquote rebuilding, that those teams were, were actually decent. I mean, I know in 03, you had the wild card spot with eight games to yeah, play and tough. lost seven of eight, right? Right. Yeah. Those years were tough. I mean, not tough, but we were hanging on a, on a thread. I remember sitting in Washington one year, I don't know what year that was, and we needed, um, somebody to lose it might have been the cubs or something like that and 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 we needed them to lose so that we could get in sneak in the wild card and and that disappointment when we just i remember pitching that last game of the year and i knew i had to go out there and shut washington down and i and uh so we could have a chance for playoffs i mean it felt like that way oh three oh four oh five you know oh six we were just like right there on the cusp of getting in and just couldn't get over the hump until oh seven and even oh seven was a grind for us you know it just you know I made the switch to the bullpen just to do what it could whatever it would take to help us go over the top to get to that next because all I cared about was winning and going to the playoffs yeah that's all I wanted to happen 
And uh, I think that, you know, us grinding out those five years or so to trying to get to the next level, 07 was the turnaround for us, even though we went three and out with the Rockies, but they were super hot at that time with those young arms they had throwing a hundred against us in those shadows at, at, um, yeah. at the bank there. And that is just crazy to see some young talent throwing a hundred for six, seven innings against us. Uh, you know, that was tough, but once we lost that year, it was on, we had yeah. the taste, we, we, we could taste it in our mouth. And, and it's just like, you know, they punched us. We tasted a little blood and next thing you know, we're, we're coming back. We're going to war in 08. And that was what, that was what our mentality was. We're, we don't want that to happen again. Cause it's a terrible feeling. We're like, yeah, so happy we made it. And the next thing you know, we're out in three games. We're like, well, that sucked. And then 08 yeah. comes around and it's like, we, now we know what it takes to get there. So let's just go out and start the season off instead of busting our ass the second half to try to make it at the last minute. Let's put some gap in between us. So before we, before we get to 08, I know that there was something that Bob wanted to ask you about from the 2007 regular season that I know that we, we actually were talking about in our little Slack chat uh, at the website. Like we got to ask Brett about this moment. So I'm going to pass it over to Bob. So uh, you, you get off to a little bit of a rough start in 07 and, and you get moved to the bullpen and you had a lot of success there. Six out of your first seven uh, save opportunities you convert. And uh, then you're down in Florida, May 23rd, 2007. You come into a 7-3 game. Things get kind of out of hand. And uh, you strike out Miguel Cabrera and Jeremy Hermita. So there's two outs. I think you guys are holding a one-run lead. Mm -hmm. And Aaron Boone, I believe, singles to Jason Worth, and he has uh, Ramirez thrown out at the plate by about 10 feet. Mm -hmm. And Ramirez slides under the tag of Rod Barajas. Now, you know commented. I went back and looked at the AP story after the game, and you said, I don't have a comment about this. Can, can you tell me what you were thinking when Hanley Ramirez slid under Rod Barajas's tag or lack of tag what was going through that because we're going through your mind there because I know obviously you end up getting hurt a couple pitches later can you yeah. kind of run us through that night um well first off the um, I'll get into the 07 thing about me having the rough starts the the plan was when they signed me to, for my arbitration deal the three-year deal after 06 I told Pat Gillick that if he we had a bunch of starters that year coming in in 07 and I told him, I said, hey, I'll go to the bullpen if you need me. So this was kind of planned in the offseason. That's interesting. I don't they, know. That they, okay. Yeah, they, they weren't. It wasn't because I had a rough start. They put me down there. It was something I suggested to them. I huh. said, I'll do whatever it takes to help make us better. And if you feel like that I'm, I'm going to make this team better in the bullpen, then that's, where I'll need, then that's where I'll go. And, you know, I did have a couple, you know, rough starts there. I mean, that's true. But, and then they made the switch, which we had six, seven starters that year I think and uh there was you know and I was not I felt like I was a better fit in the bullpen that year and I I still felt like I was I wanted to pitch out of the bullpen I love the fact that they, I had a chance to touch the ball every day so you wanted that right from the jump because like the way that I think most people understand it is like that you might have been somewhat reluctant initially and then you loved it once you started doing it okay not at all not at all because I, I made the comment Pat Gillett came to my house after the 06 season in that off season, and we were talking, and he basically it ended up got to me coming down and telling him that, hey, you know, if you need me to go to the bullpen, I'm ready. Like I, I would, I, I would welcome that. You know, it's not, it's not, I'm not a selfish guy, a selfish player. You know, and uh, 
I, that's that's what they decided to do, and I'm like, let's do it. And if it wasn't for Tom Gordon helping me, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, get into that role and help me coach me through and and that role, then I probably wouldn't have turned out that season as well as it did anyway. But back to the the Marlins game that I was there, I I really don't even know what happened. I'm sure at the time I was extremely ticked off that he didn't like make the tag there. Um, but a few pitches later, I really didn't have anything to say about it because I was hurt. And I remember throwing that pitch and straining my my Terry's, and I was like, oh, what was that? And then I got the ball back, and I threw it, and I said, well, I'm, I'll throw it until it falls off. <laughs> and I, I, te- I, would, I technically should have, me being stubborn and hard-headed because I don't ever want to give the ball up, I'm like, well, I'll throw another one. I, t- I don't know what happened. Maybe it was a cramp. The next one I throw, I about hit the guy on deck, and I and I heard it bad. And I kept telling the trainers, I'm like, I'll be all right tomorrow. I'll be all right tomorrow. And, you know, so I didn't really know how bad it was, but I knew I was hurt. And so after being getting hurt, I really didn't think about that tag anymore. You know, I was more worried about when can I get back out there and pitch so I can totally redeem myself from messing this one up. Did he, you know, ever, did he ever say anything to you? Did he go like, yo, my bad? Like, or no, like, was no, it just I never acknowledged. Yeah, no, I didn't know. I, no, I don't even know what happened. I didn't even say nothing to him, but I know that people were outraged about it. And I think they still are, but I, I'm not quite sure um, why they are. Um, I never really understood that, you know. Um, but, yeah, no, it, it didn't ever really bother me from it. I mean, that was one game. But the only thing that really made me mad about it is if he did make that out, I wouldn't have got hurt. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's one of the things that really frustrated me. Well, you, you know how we are, Brett. I mean, we, we make mountains out of molehills all the time, especially those of us in the media. Um, and I know that – I know, and I don't want to rehash the, the blow-up you had with a certain reporter that same year because – Oh, screw had, that guy. Yeah, he's had, run, he's had other run-ins with other people that he's covered. Which I, he, I pattern, wouldn't have right? been that mad. I wouldn't have been that mad if he didn't put his finger in my face. Yeah. But you got to know the backstory of all that, too. This uh, well, guy, like, I do. followed me around. Yeah, and just poked at me, and and he was standing by my locker all the time. And I went to our PR guy, Greg Castriotto. I said, "Keep that guy away from me. He's weirding me out." And he's starting to irritate me because he asked me the dumbest damn questions that has nothing to do with anything. Uh, so, and then I kind of got the backstory on him and who he was and stuff, and found out he just fills in for somebody. So that's kind of where that came from. Yeah, no, no, I, that's not what I was gonna. That was I was going with a different question, but I'm glad you cleared that up. Uh, the yeah. <laughs> The question I was going to ask was, what was it like dealing with the media here as opposed to anywhere else? Are we really that difficult? And, 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 how, do you, well, and how do you think the media shaped the perception of you as a player in Philadelphia? Well, I can tell you this, that um, we were kind of trained of how to handle y'all at a, at a young age. Um, if, you, if they felt like that you were one of the top prospects in the organization, they had people prepare us for the media. And uh, how I was perceived – in the media, I did not like any of y'all. I didn't, I didn't like talking to you, and it wasn't nothing personal. I just didn't want to do it. But what I learned over the years, the older I got, the more accountability you have and the more you say, stand up and say, you know what, I screwed up. You know, or, hey, I didn't have a good day. Didn't they stop asking you questions? Mm-hmm. You know, you, t- you tell them the point that, they, that they're thinking, 
but you know in your mind you have to be a man and not make excuses about why you lost the game. And in my early years, I was trying to make excuses for myself and not knowingly making excuses, but I was trying to explain what I was thinking, and it came off as an excuse. But the older I got there, I was like, listen, hey, I suck today, guys. I, I, I put in the work, and it didn't turn out for me. And then after that, they're like, okay, thanks. And then they walked away. I was like, wow, I think I figured something out here. <laughs> you know, if you just stand up and say exactly, hey, this is, this is what happened. I sucked. Okay, I'll see you on five days. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. I, there's one other thing I wanted to ask before. I, Bob's going to dive into the 2008 season with you in a minute. But um, one last thing I wanted to ask about, because I remember this being really hysterical. You went to great lengths in spring training in 2008 to punk Kyle Kendrick. Uh, oh, yeah. You got Charlie involved, Ruben involved, his agent, all the writers were in on it. You, oh, yeah. you were trading him to Japan for the guy who wins the Nathan's hot dog eating competition. Yeah, well, can I you can take tell us you through this. that. <laughs> yes, I'll tell you this. So I was approached by Leslie Goodell, and this this skit was actually done by Larry Anderson. I think they did it on Wayne Gomes, like way back in the day. And and Leslie Goodell asked me if I would want to be a part of it. And you know, Kyle was a gullible kid, and I thought it'd be funny as heck to mess with him. And I did not know the, that it was going to go viral like that. And next thing you know, we're on Good Morning America and stuff. And I didn't know he was still going to be talking about it to this day. And it, it must have really hurt him. No, I'm just kidding. We talk about it all the time. <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah, so I, she came to me about this because she figured I'd be, like, the perfect guy to do it. And I'm, it was basically, like, me and Madsen. And Madsen's like, no, nah, I don't want a part of it. I said, okay. So I started thinking my way through it. Of, I said, I got to get Charlie involved. I got to get Ruben involved. I need, and the last thing was, I said, Ruben, you need to call his agent because the first person he's going to call when he gets out of there is his agent. That's what I would do. Right. Be like, Hey, is this for real? Like what's going on? I don't, I don't want to go to Japan. You know, exactly what I would be thinking. Never been there. I don't want to plan on going there. That's exactly what I think he would think. So, so all the, the names and all that stuff was, and I had the traveling secretary involved in it and all this stuff. So the planning took about two weeks before we actually pulled the prank just to make sure that these guys were in. It's like, yeah, I'll do it, you know? And um, so all the details with the hot dog eating guy and the Yoshimir Giants or whatever, that was all Ruben in them. So they come up with the names. I guess Leslie had talked to them. So it was like a big circle of everybody to get involved. But, yes, I might have been the ringleader. But Leslie Goodell, it was her idea to do it. And I couldn't – I never would have imagined this to some little prank like that, which I thought was great. I didn't tell any of my teammates. None of them knew. So those reactions that they were having was, like, sincere. And I don't know how I kept it quiet for two weeks. But I made sure to tell everybody that, oh, man, they're trading Kendrick to Japan. And they're like, what? And I think maybe I was the only one and everybody else that was involved knew that you can't get traded to Japan. <laughs> so Kendrick wouldn't know that. But, uh, but I was laughing at it because I couldn't believe how many people really wanted to screw this kid's world up. <laughs> between, between Charlie, between because I could tell you my reaction would have been like, oh, no. Like this team doesn't want me anymore. I'm not good enough. And 
And I don't, I've never been – it probably would have been just like him. I might not have handled it as good as he did, but I had to let everybody in on it. And it took some planning. But for, this, for as big as that thing got and still as big as it is, is beyond me. And I think it's funny, but I still talk to him about it. I think he's still pissed at me. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about the 08 08- season and I think that one of the things that that I know personally like I was a I was a college kid when you guys won the World Series and like I I just remember the way that that year started for you like you're on the mound last game 162 2007 first time the Phillies have been in the playoffs for 14 years you lock it down you were awesome down the stretch in 07 and then they get Brad Lidge in the offseason and then you're a starter again so I guess like to to look at 08 you know, we know that there were issues going on the first couple months. You get sent down, you come back up, and you're great down the stretch. I think you're like the 306 ERA, like 88 innings pitch once you come back up. But can you talk a little bit about what happened at the start of the 08 season? Yeah, I was being selfish. I wanted to be the closer. And uh, I, I didn't – I didn't – my velocity went down. I wasn't throwing as hard. I was throwing way too many pitches. I was trying to strike everybody out because the mentality as a closer was three strikeouts look really good on paper. And um, as a starter, it's complete opposite. You have to, um, you know, pitch the contact. And as a closer, I don't want anybody hitting me. I want to be dominant and stuff like that. And my mentality never switched back over to a starter the first half of the year. And I, I wasn't throwing as hard after my injury in 07. As a starter, I was, you know, I wasn't throwing the, the – I wasn't sitting at the 92 to 94 anymore. I was more around 90, 92, and, I, and you know, 88 and stuff and, and wasn't – was trying to throw it by guys that I felt like I could get it by them, but it's a different game. And I was wasting too many pitches and just frustrated and, you know, upset with the results of everything. And, and I asked them to put me back in the bullpen so I, until I could figure my head out and – they decided to send me down, which was I was reluctant to do. I was didn't want to go to minor leagues, you know, and I didn't have to go either. I had five years in that you don't have to go. You can deny it and say I'm not going. But that's when I had to – it took me a couple hours, three, three hours or so, talking to my dad and my agent and the AAA coach who's a big part of my career. I had him in A-ball, and I still talk to him today. And kind of listening to them – and they're like, just come on down here and relax, take the pressure off, and we'll figure we'll figure it out. And and I'm like, I don't want to go. I don't want to leave. You know, I worked so hard to get here, and my whole goal is to stay here. And uh, I had to swallow my pride. And I and I kind of said, you know what? I'm not helping this team anyway, and I don't think I'll help them that much in the bullpen either. Um, so I'm just gonna go down and try to get my my stuff straight. You know, my head and my 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 uh, mechanics and everything. And I went down and I focused on learning how to be a starter again and how to pitch instead of throw. And I came back and I didn't know what was going to happen. I had no idea. I, I took one little thing um, that my pitching coach told me and I ran with it and it worked like a charm. And I was seriously surprised that major league pitcher or major league hitters couldn't figure out what the hell I was doing because I didn't, ex- I didn't expect to come down the stretch and just dominate guys like that and pitch into deep into games and, and everything. You know, I felt like I was, 
I actually started to see hitter swings and everything. I became a, a better pitcher and not a thrower. And that was one of the things that it was like a bittersweet year for me because I got sent down. It was down in the bottom, stressed out, you name it. You know, I don't think like depression ever was in there, but you know, just kind of like, Oh man, maybe I'm not good enough anymore. You know, like doubting yourself in certain times and, and uh, you know, I just said, you know, stick with it, see what happens and came back and, you know, it worked out great. And I tell the people the story, I think it's one of, one of my better stories just because you get sent to the minors and then all of a sudden at the end of the year, you're world series champion. Yeah. I think that for the majority of the fan base, it's the one thing that resonates the most with them. I mean, to just be where you were at in the middle of the season to, to not only win the world series, but I mean, if we're being honest, they don't win the world series without what you did to even get them into the postseason. And then, what we're going to talk about now, what you did once you got to the postseason. I mean, you were in the middle of, of everything. And I guess let's start first with the uh, NLDS game two. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the at-bat in a second because I'm sure everybody wants to hear about the, the at-bat with CC Sabathia. But I think that the thing people kind of overlook is that you outpitched him in that game too. I mean, it wasn't just a, hey, you had a nine-pitch at-bat early on. It was – you were awesome in that game. Seven innings, I believe two runs, uh, kept a hot offense off the boards. So – I mean, I, I guess, is there anything that jumps out at you about that game specifically? And then if you would, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the, the bat in the second inning against CC. Well, I had pitched against them, and I think this is where my um, season kind of – and I didn't know what I was going to get because I was, I was on a roll for so long pitching-wise. And then I got, I got to well, – I think we had a doubleheader against the Brewers in the regular season. And I think Blanton started the first one. I started the second one. And I was on three days rest, and I didn't – I was like, I'll take the ball. I'm, give it to me. Let's go, you know. As I never would turn it, turn the ball down. I felt fine. I skipped the bullpen. I was ready to go. And um, I did that, and I put, on that three days rest, I went out and threw a complete game against them. And uh, then after that, I tried to come back on five – on my normal day's rest. And I don't know what it is about pitchers going on three days rest and then trying to go back to – to their normal day rest and I know it sounds silly but it's because it's an extra day but something happened and I just didn't have good stuff anymore you know for the next two starts so going into the playoffs I was like well I had I had like 10 days off before the playoffs or something like that it was so I was good and rested going into the playoffs and had a good mentality ready to go in and stuck to my game plan but I had pitched against them you know a few weeks before and I kind of had a good feel had a good feel about a feel of what they could do at the plate and just from facing them before so I kind of stuck with that game plan because it worked the last time so and I'd make adjustments along the way and I ended up pitching well and going against CC everybody goes into that and they're like oh Brett Myers versus Goliath you know you know David versus Goliath here and but I went into that game going I had just as good as numbers he did the second half. There's no way he's going to outpitch me today. And and I didn't – it wasn't really him versus me. It was our hitters versus him and me versus their hitters. And I've had good success against their hitters, you know, in weeks prior. So I wasn't nervous at all who was pitching for them. It was That was up to Shane and Jimmy and Ryan and all the all the donkeys on the team to get him, you know. Um, so, and you, as it turns out. And well, you. Well, <laughs> that, was, that was a uh, – I don't know what happened, honestly. Like, people ask me, like, I was just up there fighting. I didn't expect 
I, I expected him to strike me out or me at least foul something off or whatever. But I always I, – a lot of pitchers don't take their hitting seriously. I do. Like, I loved hitting. I might not have looked pretty when I was up there because guys were throwing 98 on my hands. And it's not a comfortable at bat, especially with a guy that's six, seven, six, eight out there, 200 whatever pounds he is, just a freaking giant throwing 98 on your hands and you're up there going, huh, whatever. You know, there's just no pressure in that situation because everybody expects me to strike out. Everybody expected me to lose that game against CC. So I went in there saying, oh, if they expect me to lose, what's the worst that can happen? Just don't embarrass yourself, right? Right. And just compete. When you were up there, were you, like, thinking, hey, you know, I'm actually going to try to get on base, or was it more about just running up the pitch count at that point? Because, I mean, no. by, like, no, the fifth pitch, the down. fans are going nuts. Like, they're, they're all into it. Like, they knew right away by, like, pitch five what was going on. Yeah, honestly, I can tell you this, and this is going to sound just totally conceited and stupid, but every pitch he threw me looked like a beach ball. <laughs> like, I mean, I could see it, like, perfectly, you know? And I didn't know until he was throwing 98 on my hands until – the fact after I'm like oh my god like I can't believe this like how did I even put a bat on that but to to, you know for me I was out there battling it didn't matter I was in a fight you know I I was wasn't trying to go down you know if he got me he got me and he I ended up keep fouling pitches off and stuff but for some reason it just I could see it out of his hand well that day and it wasn't any it could have been blind luck but the way I see it is that he was throwing it up there and I was just fighting, having a good time at the plate. And the more the fans cheered, the more I wanted to fight. Did that, that, act- was, that was one of the biggest things, though. You know, the, the fans, the playoff atmosphere, it's, it's, it's not like the regular season. It's a completely different adrenaline rush. It is like that. I get nervous or you get adrenaline before every game you pitch, but nothing like the damn playoffs, nothing like it. It's, it's, I mean, your adrenaline, I went from throwing 88 to 94, 95, and I didn't even know where that was. I'm like, where was that in this, during the season? You know, but it's just something happens, man. And trust me, definitely a lot sore after playoff games. <laughs> Did that uh, at bat against CC translate into your next start against the Dodgers in game two? I remember this game very well. Uh, I'm standing out in left field watching you go three for three against the Dodgers in, in game two of the NLCS. I mean, Chad Billingsley, by the way, no slouch either. He had been awesome in the postseason yes. up until that point. I yep. mean, wh- what the hell happened that day? Because that was well, one of the crazier things I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, like I told you, I could hit in high school. <laughs> but no, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the funny thing is this, because I, I went into the – because, you know, in playoffs, the media talks to you the day before you start, and then they talk to you after, obviously, right? So after the CC game, I'm being funny, and I walk in the dang thing my, my day before I start against the Dodgers because the last time that the media talked to me was after my start against CC, And they didn't talk about me throwing seven innings and two runs. I'm glad you brought that up because people forget I pitched that day. That's right. <laughs> which, is, which is fine, which is fine because the, the bat definitely overshadowed the other, the other work I did. But uh, it's, it's kind of funny because when I went in to talk about the Dodgers series coming up, I took my bat with me. Just to be funny. And I put it – because I was good and relaxed that year. You know, I got sent to the minors. I'm like, screw it. What's the worst going to happen? They send me down again? You know, so I was good and relaxed and having some fun with competing again, you know, instead of being so stressed out about everything. So I walk in there with my bat, and I said, hey, guys, I figured since all you want to do is talk about my hitting, you can ask my bat the questions. 
and it was just being <laughs> i was just being funny you know being good and they laughed at whatever and we walked over the series and then the next thing you know charlie turns me loose if you notice like every time i came up to the plate there was always two outs so charlie in the regular season never let any of his pitchers swing first pitch and most i'd say most or almost all major league managers will not let a pitcher swing at the first pitch and it's just because they're trying to run the pitch count up or something like that you know so as a pitcher as a starting for me i know the guy's not swinging i'm throwing it right down the middle to the pitcher there you go strike one you know so charlie told me to go ahead and swing it and i went up there and i saw three pitches and i got i got three hits and i didn't even expect that i just i swung and I actually was thinking in my head as a hitter. First at bat, I come up. Billingsley throws me this pitch. I'm like, well, he, th- well, he threw me like a little cutter or slider, and I hit it up the middle. And then next at bat, I said, he's definitely throwing me a fastball now. I tried to throw it by me, and I slapped it the other way. And then my third at bat, I came up. I said, well, they've tried two of those. Here comes a curveball. And the guy threw me a curveball, and I swung at it and dinked hit the, it hit down the, the third. That one. <laughs> yeah, well, I hit myself in the head with the bat harder than I hit the ball. And you're standing down on first base, shrugging your shoulders, and you know you got your palms up in the air. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because the guys were over there laughing at me, making fun of me and stuff, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know how I'm doing. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, and I, I I was just up there swinging. There was two outs, whatever, you know. And it happened. He happened to hit my bat, threw it into my bat speed, I guess. But uh, yeah, that was always something that I look back on. And I could I tell my kids, I'm like, yeah, see, I rake, man. I could hit. So when I try to tell them, tell these kids how to hit, they're like, you're a pitcher. What do you know? I said, well, playoffs say different, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> And that's the only numbers that really count. I don't care if I, if I hit 067 that year, you know, it only counted when I got to the playoffs. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that the one thing that I, I always remember about 08, Brett, and maybe you can just address this is that the, you had the star players, right? I mean, we, we you know, everybody's going to remember Jimmy and Chase and Ryan and Cole, the way he pitched. But it was a team. It was a, the the one time I remember a full twenty five man effort to get through uh, to a championship. I mean, I you know you think of little things, whether it's Matt Stairs' home run or Jeff Jenkins yeah. hitting the double, or yeah. even you know Scott Air and Chad Durbin coming in and, and getting some key outs in middle relief. It, yeah. it, it, does that did that make the title that much more special because it was actually a twenty five man effort and not just three or four guys carrying I, the team? I think that we kind of played as a team you know like they say individuals don't win championships teams do and I, f- I firmly believe that that year we came together we might not have liked each other all the time because it's kind of like you having a brother and you, they, you can get annoying when you see each other all the time which that's fine you know you get your space and then you'll be back at it but when we when we crossed the lines all that was out the door you know we we knew that like for instance I got on the mound or Cole got on the mound or Jamie got on the mound or or Kendrick or whoever, Joe B, JB steps on the mound, they all knew that we were going to give them everything that we had. And they were going to give us everything that they had. And I think that brought us together um, as a team because when you're diving for baseballs for me and trying to possibly injure yourself and making plays for us and stuff like that, you're proving to me that you're a damn good teammate. You know, you're not just out there for yourself. You're out there to win this ball game. And I'm not saying guys take plays off, but they do. I mean, shoot, I take hitters off or pitches off, and not on purpose, though. Just kind of happens. 
you know, not expecting stuff and everything. But, but yeah, the, the, the only way we win that championship, I, I see people put on Twitter all the time about, can't believe we won a World Series with Brett Myers and Jamie Moore and Joe Blanton. Well, you know what? We pitched our damn asses off. Mm-hmm. You know, we pitched as good as anybody out there, and that's why we won it. You know, that's why. It doesn't matter what you think of us or we're not that big name top top gun for you, you know, like a CC Sabathia or something like that. Because sometimes you have the best names out there, which the Phillies had, and they didn't win a World Series. They had five of the best starters in the big leagues, which is crazy that they didn't get there, mm-hmm. you know. So sometimes you got to have a little luck too. can't just have, like, the best arms and best – the best because baseball will sneak up on you. And, and that's why people watch it because you never know what's going to happen. So after the 09 season, you, you leave Philadelphia. Was there ever a conversation like, hey, let's try to work something out where you stick around? Or was it pretty not at all. solidified at that point where you were going to move on to Houston or, you know, wherever at the time? Yeah, not at all. There wasn't a conversation at all. They pulled me in and, you know, I had hip surgery that year. Um, I was trying to pitch through it. And it was one to – it wasn't good. I had the same thing Chase had. I had the torn labrum and the bone spurs and bone chips and everything in there off of my push-off leg. And I tried to pitch through it the best I could, but it, it wasn't working. And I had to get in a, a doctor's opinion to see what it was. And they told me I needed surgery. So then I tried to come back in the bullpen. And I made it back because my goal was to show other teams or the Phillies that I was healthy with my hip and they could take a chance on me next year or something like that. But I remember getting called in after the world series, Ruben Amaro telling me, Hey, we're not going to bring you back next year. And I remember telling him to probably to kiss my ass a few times, but, but I mean, it was a business, you know, and then they got Roy Halliday. I'm like, Oh, well, he's better than me. Good job. <laughs> so I was actually looking for a job until January and Ed Wade called me up. He goes, you want to, you want to start or you want to, want to relieve I said well what's going to get me a job he goes well I'll give you a, you're going to start for us and we're going to try to reestablish you as a starter again and I said I'll take it I, you're the only offer I got you know they didn't was there something that that happened down there that, that were just kind of all clicked again or was it just a matter of being healthy I mean you were and and you know you were awesome that year 33 starts ERA just a, a hair over three you're 10th in the Cy Young voting that year I mean it was arguably yeah, your best statistical like 110 games yeah I mean, was there just what, – what happened down there? Well, I could tell you I didn't really give a damn. You know, I kind of went into the season <laughs> and I, I didn't really – I came off a hip surgery. And, and I, I know that sounds silly when I say that, but I just went out there and pitched. I wasn't really – I wasn't really trying to do anything special, you know. I really didn't – I didn't have any pressure on me or any stress. And I, that's and that's way – when I realized that that's when I'll pitch better. It started in 08 when I came back and it kind of that carefree attitude, but still going to compete. You know, I'm not saying that I didn't care what happened, you know, I'm just saying that just like, Hey, walk into the game. Hey, it's either my day or it's their day. There's nothing you can control besides you throwing to your spots and stuff. But a big part of that year was Brad Arnsberg, um, the pitching coach there. He, he was, he was by far, best pitching coach more prepared than any pitching coach I've ever had in my entire career on him actually doing the film work and studying guys. This is how good the guy was. He would study guys that pitched like me to figure out how I'm going to get them out, which was 
insane. He did all the work for me, and he would just talk to me about it through the week. As we were going through, I would always sit next to him just to hear him tell me. And this is the same guy that had Roy Halliday as well, so I'm obviously all in on this, you know, with this guy. And I bought into his plan, and it worked. I remember looking over at him half the time and him telling me what to throw because I might have been confused. I didn't see something that he might have saw, and I'll just kind of look at him, and he would he would tell me. Plus, he made it nice and relaxed. I remember I'd get out there, and, you know, Houston, we didn't have many fans out there at the time. And I don't know what Joe's language barrier is. Go right ahead. Go, you can ah, go ahead. One. We, but we I remember yeah. if you first pitch of the game, I'd throw a high fastball, and he'd yell out, get that shit down. And I'd just die <laughs> laughing. I would die laughing because, like, the first pitch of the game, he's already riding my ass about about getting it down. And it wasn't just me that he yelled at. He did it to everybody. And it was just a fun, relaxed time, you know. it wasn't There wasn't a lot of stress. And I pitched better without stress. Mm-hmm. So I think that has a lot of test to it. And it wasn't just all about – I put a lot of pressure and stress on myself nights before I would go to bed and – couldn't sleep at times because I'd be running through the lineup and what lineup they're going to put in front of me. That was my younger days. About 08, I was like, I don't care who they put up there at this point. I'm going to stick to my game plan, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, back to the drawing board type thing, you know. And uh, really wasn't – that whole 08 season changed me. You know, changed my whole perception of going out there and pitching. Instead of – I would be literally my younger years worried – four days straight to who I was going to face and what lineup they're going to put in there and just overthinking it. Brad, I, I know, we're, I, I, know, I know we're nearing the end of the, uh, the time that we have with you here, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you before we get into, I, I do have a couple questions about your music career, but I did want to ask one more baseball career question. Um, yeah. After your time in Houston, you were traded to Chicago. You did a nice job for them out of the pen. You got a contract with Cleveland, but then injuries occurred there. Did you know that was the end of your career, or did you think that you might still have had a chance to try again, but the opportunity didn't arise? Um, well, I, I kind of got pushed around a little bit in Houston. I was I threw 440 innings for them, and then all of a sudden I'm 33 years old, and last year my contract, and they want me to make want me to be the closer. And I'm like, what? No, I haven't done it in you know five years, and you want me to be the closer? It was a business decision, so they could trade me, and then in Chicago. I was up every time because I, I was too pride. I guess pride took over to where I didn't never want to tell them I wouldn't take the ball. So I'd sometimes I'd be throwing a lot. So in the end of the year in uh, Chicago is when my elbow started bothering me and we ended up not making the playoffs and, and my, but my elbow was barking the whole time. So I went home in the off season, tried to strengthen it up and it went away. I was good playing catch back in spring training. And then I went to Cleveland and I was doing fine in spring training, had my first start and doing good. And then all of a sudden after my first start, it started getting, it started coming back and me being stubborn, I should have probably said, Hey, you know, let's take care of this now. Um, but I didn't want to stay in Arizona. You know, I wanted to go with the team. I, I don't, the DL is a lonely place and I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only one to tell you guys that, but, you know, so I kept trying to pitch through it, and uh, I just – in Houston, it actually ended for me. I threw my last fastball at 82 miles an hour, and I tried to throw the damn shit out of it. And it didn't go no, – it didn't – ran up there 82. They came and checked on me. I said, if this is my last inning, I'm finishing it. 
you know, and uh, I was hoping and, and trying after that, they, you know, they x-rayed it and did everything, did the MRIs and tore my flexor and, and, and sprained my, my UCL, which is a slight tear in there, but it's fine. But after that, I tried to work back rehab. I was pitching, trying to get back and it was still bothering me, but I wouldn't tell them. And I was trying to get back and finally I was ready. I thought I was ready. And they said, well, in order for us to bring you back, we're going to have to drop one of our younger kids off of the 60 man roster. And I said, listen, don't do that. Keep that kid. I'm, I'm nothing into this team right now. They've played almost the whole year without me. I said, just go ahead and release me. And then that off season, I was doing stuff around the house. I could, my, my elbow was killing me. My agent called me, he goes, you want me to find you a team? And I said, you know what, honestly, I can't even shake a grown man's hand right now with any kind of firm handshake. And I said, I don't know how long it's going to take for it's going to heal or it's definitely not going to heal in three months if I've been rehabbing it for dang five months. So I basically said, you know, that's, it didn't, it didn't stop hurting me for like two years. Wow. So trying to throw, you know, BP to my kids and stuff. It, it, I had to put like a brace on it and, you know, try to do it. But that was the time where I always told myself, I said, you know what? I will, I will throw until it falls off and it didn't fall off, but it wasn't working anymore. <laughs> so that was like, and I was, and I was also watching guys like Corey Kluber and, and these young kids, the Indians had throwing 98 to hundred miles an hour. I'm like, what the hell do y'all need my 88 for? <laughs> I'm out of here, man. If all these kids are going to be throwing this damn hard. And it, there's a part of me that wants to, wanted to keep going, but I wasn't going to help nobody. Right. You know, it was just kind of one of those, it's a tough decision, but after seeing my kids cry, when I went to spring training that year, when coming home was easy. Yeah. You know, that makes a lot of sense. There's two loves, you know, baseball and family. And you know, that I played enough baseball, loved, enjoyed my time playing, but you know, my family was more important to me. So they're going to be around the longest baseballs could be gone at any time. And it was. Yep. So. Well, you actually transitioned into a different career. I mean, you were often seen strumming a guitar in Philly, but I'm not sure anyone ever thought you would transition into actually cutting albums, right? I mean, you've released- I didn't either. <laughs> I, I swear to you, I didn't. I did not either. And I just, uh, when I was in Cleveland, um, I had a lot of downtime. And playing guitar, I was getting better at it. And, you know, I had a lot of downtime. They're telling me to stop playing guitar because of my arm. And I'm going, what do you want me to do? I can't just sit here. I can't, you won't let me play Xbox because I use those muscles. You won't let me strum guitar because I use those muscles. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Uh, you know, I, I don't, I had nothing to do. So I called my buddy that was in a uh, band nonpoint at the time. And, and uh, I said, Hey man, you ain't doing nothing. Why don't you come stay with me in Cleveland and let's write some songs. You can, you can write them on guitar. Or I'll write the lyrics. So I kind of did that uh, there just to pass the time and, didn't expect anything out of it and I saw about you know that off season when I got home I guess my buddy that I went to high school with but don't remember going to high school with him he, but he's a friend of mine on Facebook and he's a producer so I called him I said I got these three songs kind of recorded terribly um on GarageBand we don't know what we're doing um if I give them to you can you make them better you know might master them and stuff like that and do everything so he goes, well, let's play some golf, and I'll listen to him. So I played golf with him, played the songs for him, and I listen to those songs now, and I'm like, holy crap, those were terrible. <laughs> like, just, just garbage. Like, you know, compared to where I, how far I've 
then, you know. So I ended up talking to the guy, the producer, and he's telling me a story. We were in high school, and I and I, he popped off to me or something, and I drilled him in the back. He was We were playing a scrimmage, and he's like, you were an ass. I said, yeah, well, don't pop off to me, apparently. You know, I don't remember doing any of that. I could say yes. I, I wouldn't put it past me at that time, but yes. So now he's like one of my best friends, and he played in Puddle of Mud, and he's my producer. He plays bass in the band. And uh, so he tells me to come over and we write a song together. And, and uh, I'm like, this is sweet, man. And he goes, now get in there and sing it. I said, nope. I said, I'm not doing it, buddy. I said, you were the singer in your band. You're singing it. I just want to write the songs. Uh-huh. I don't want to have nothing to do with getting on that mic. And he goes, you got to sing it. It's your song. I said, I'm out. I left. I left. I, I said, I'm not doing it. I, I literally left his house. And he kept calling me, and he's like, when are you going to sing this song? I said, just get in there and sing it, dude. I said, I'm not doing it. And he goes, my country voice sucks. I said, well, so does mine. And uh, next thing you know, I see him. Anyway, he he calls me up, and he goes, hey, why don't you come over, man? We're going to have uh, some people over and come have some cocktails, and we'll do it. And, and I was like, yeah, sure, man. I'll come hang out, whatever. And he gets me over there, feeds me about six, seven beers, and everybody's starting Set to leave. Up. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. <laughs> a 12 pack later i'm in there singing my dang heart out and like i'm in the shower or something like that and he's like man this sounds really good i'm like i don't care it feels like i'm singing karaoke right now i'm drunk so that's kind of how i did like the first song I, I would always so the first album i would have to get in there because i was a creature of habit from baseball that i would have to do the same routine every time i'd go in there and sing so it was always six beers, six beers before I got in there, six <laughs> beers before I got in there. And then so then that's how the whole first album was made. It was like always six beers, always six beers before I sang. It wasn't during the writing process. It was just like when he says, okay, it's time to sing. And I'm like, I need six beers. Yeah. And I drink great. them and I get in there and sing it. That's now awesome. it's gotten better. I'm a little more comfortable, but I'm, it's nerve wracking. It's yeah. nerve wracking. And my first live show was the, one of the most stressful times of my life. And everybody's like, how can that be stressful? You pitched in front of 40,000 people in the World Series. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't have to sing. If I mess up the words on this song, I'm done with music. Because that's all it takes. You mess up one time, they will talk about you forever. <laughs> they won't give you another opportunity. So, uh, your, your videos are a blast. I mean, you look like you guys are having a great time filming every one of them. Is it like a party with each one? Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we, uh, I, I want my music to be fun. And people yeah. to have fun with it. And I, I sing about partying and drinking beer. You know, it's not necessarily just like partying. I mean, we like to have a good time. We like to hang out. We like to do things. And especially, you know, enjoying the stuff that I couldn't do when I was playing baseball. Right. And stuff like that. So um, that's kind of, I want to be upbeat. Like my wife gets out here and starts playing slower Lionel Richie songs at night. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to bed. <laughs> I'm like, if you, it's, <laughs> If that's what, yes, it's a good song, but I'm not, I'm not in that mood. I don't yeah. ever get in that mood to where it's like, like that for me. But, uh, but yeah, I'm always trying to write upbeat songs. Never want anything to be slow about how my dog got run over or something like that. And not the typical country stuff about the girl that left you and everything like that. I, I'm more or less about, hey, we're just going to have a good time, you know? Well, I, I want, you mentioned drinking six beers before you, before you sing. A lot of Bud Light in your videos. Is that your go-to, or do you secretly have another beer that you like that hasn't made it quite into the videos yet? My favorite kind of beer is an open one. <laughs> uh, 
I'm so with you there. I yeah, am so with you there. If it's there and you don't have what I don't care, I'm going to drink it. But uh, <laughs> especially if it's hot outside and I've done yard work or something about after I get done outside, I'm probably going to have a beer. Yeah, that's awesome. But, uh, but it doesn't take six anymore. So okay, I can I can I can do drink two or three a day. But yeah, but, but you know the perception of these songs and stuff is about drinking and partying. So it looks like Bud Light and and yes, I was using Bud Light because the big brand. Yeah, maybe they'll send me a case or two. <laughs> it didn't work out too well for me though. Yeah, you, you haven't reached out to them on Twitter yet. You haven't. Um, you haven't. Yeah, oh, yeah, that? I have. I have. Okay. I've done that. And so like the the. The funny one, well, I know people, a lot of people make fun of what kind of beer people drink. They're like, oh, you drink that, that's terrible. Or what kind of truck you drive, Chevy versus Ford versus Dodge. You know, they always, they've always got an opinion. I'm like, listen, does this beer get you get you tipsy? Does that beer get you tipsy? Yes, they all do, so shut up. <laughs> you know, but this is great. This is, this is fantastic. A, this is my favorite yeah, part of the interview, man. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody brings – we've got a lake house, and everybody brings bush light. So everybody's on the bush light kick. I love it. That's like a so, college throwback for me. That was a go-to, that and Keystone. Now I will tell you this one. This is a good one for you guys now. Yeah. It's called Natty Daddy. I don't know if Natty you've heard of Daddy. it. Well, it's, 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 all right, so there. part of it's got to be natural light, right? It is a natural light, but it's 8% alcohol. But cool. it tastes like a, nat, like a light beer. It doesn't have like – you know, most of those high alcohol – beers at eight percent kind of tastes like you know you got to sip them you can't just drink them well this right. tastes like a light beer you drink three of those like you're drinking a normal beer a normal light beer yeah you're screwed <laughs> you're, i wonder if they sell screwed. them is this a southern thing i wonder if they have them up here i don't know it's in a blue can and i i've just bought it yeah i'm, I'm googling it now yeah <laughs> yeah I might have to the greatest names ever. I might have to reach out to you after the show and get a shipment from you or something. If that's like a Southern beer, I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. And I I spent a lot of time in a liquor store, Brett. Yeah. I don't, y'all do weird liquor rules up there. We can go to the gas station and get it. I don't, I think they might've changed that up there though. Didn't they? We just run to the gas station and get it. Yeah. They have beer. They have beer in the supermarkets now. They still have. uh, uh, Yeah. But that's, that's about it. I don't know if that's a Southern thing or not, but because we have beer everywhere. Yeah. Every gas station you can pull over and get a beer. That's so, awesome. That's awesome. But yeah, yeah. Try the Natty Daddy. Drink one of those, and it's it's uh it's yeah. My buddies come over here and they're like, man, these things are good. It tastes like Natty Light, whatever. Blah blah. blah. And next thing you know, they can't make a sentence. <laughs> I said, I told you guys to be careful. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Hey, Brett. Listen, we we really appreciate you taking an, yeah the time. You gave us more than an hour. That's that's more than we could have ever asked for. Great well, stuff. This is what retired baseball players and current <laughs> musicians that COVID shut down their whole tour have to offer, okay? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I know I appreciate it a lot, man. Well, hey, listen, you got to bring that tour to Philly. I guarantee you, you could get some ton yeah. of people who would party with you for a music video up here. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, I've been trying for several years to get somebody to book me up there, but they want to book me in these smaller venues. And I'm like, you know what, guys, it's got to, I will do it for what it costs us to get there. You know what I mean? Right. Whether us driving up there and paying the band and stuff like that, and I'll, I'll do it for that. But, um, you know, I can't get anybody to take it serious up there, I guess, to book us in one of these um, thousand people venues or something, you know. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can uh, put in some calls, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah. Tell everyone. Yeah, I, I want to see the uh, Phillies do the, the post-game concert series with you. Yeah, I, I was, I was yeah. at, have a I'm Brett Myers concert. Box. 
I was sitting in the press box after some of those games last year listening to that stuff. I, I think you could – I think you'd be all right, man. Um, the, our live shows are better than our albums. I can promise you that. It's it's a lot more – it's a lot better, I would say. But but um, the I, – I don't know. I've asked them. I've, called, I've made phone calls. And like I said, man, they, none of them take it serious or want to give me the opportunity or a gift. I don't know. I don't know what their deal is about it. But, you know, hopefully one day it will happen. Well, hopefully we'll be there to, to cheer you on and enjoy it because it sounds like it'd be a great time. Yes, it would. <laughs> yes, it would. Well, again, Brett, thanks again. This has been a real treat. Uh, and uh, best of luck to you. And hopefully, uh, you know, we don't have to wait until the uh, 20th anniversary of the 08 championship to see you again up here in Philadelphia. Well, I can tell you this, not to be selfish or anything, but I hope they never win another one. <laughs> not for you guys. Not for you guys. I just kind of enjoyed them still talking about us, you know, because yeah, once, yeah. once we're done, they don't talk about 1980 no more, you know. That's so. like a 72 Dolphins thing right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. I don't – I'd rather let it go on just a little bit longer. Yeah. I'll be over it in a while. But well, I don't think you have to worry about it this year. But <laughs> uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So another year. Finally, man, another year. Yeah, but I yeah. do hope the city of Philadelphia does, you know, win another championship, obviously, just because I love that city. And, you know, it's the second home for me. So, you know, I, I want it for the fans more than anything. So, Great. Well, thanks again, Brett. Have a good one and uh, take care and we'll talk to you soon. You too. Appreciate it. Thanks, All right. Take care. So there's Brett Myers of the 2008 Phillies. And Bob, he's a character, man. Oh, he's he got was, some great stories. He was awesome. You know, like sometimes you come into these things and you wonder like, are, are, is this going to be like pulling teeth trying to get guys to tell stories and open up a little bit? And, you know, he gets going there and, and th that was a great listen, you know, and to just kind of work back through some of the, the memories that you – you have of, of those teams before, you know, leading into 07, 08, and then talking about the playoffs and all that. But, I mean, honestly, just a, a guy that seems like he, he likes to have a lot of fun. And I enjoyed – surprisingly, to, to be perfectly honest with you, I, I enjoyed talking about the music stuff and the yeah. drinking beer just as much as I enjoyed <laughs> talking about the 08 Phillies. You know, yeah. so that, was, that was great. Well, it's great to get to know these guys, like, as people. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're always, you know, our sports heroes that we watch on TV or we see down at the game. But we forget that, you know, when they're, when they're not uh, do, doing that, that they're actually living a life kind of like we are and that they probably like a lot of the same things we do. So Absolutely. guy likes to throw back a few beers and, and, you know, listen, play some music and have a good time. Who doesn't like to do that? Right. I mean, that's, that's awesome. With them on that one, 100%. So, I mean, uh, I, I hope that you guys uh, enjoyed uh, listening to Brett. It's our plan moving forward. You know, obviously the, the success of Snow the Goalie, we talked about it in our last episode. Those guys are up to number five now uh, on Chartable um, in, in terms of hockey podcasts in America. And, you know, it, they've been real successful with that format. And we're going to do our best over the uh, coming weeks here is, is hopefully baseball works its way back. I mean, at this point, you know, we've both been optimistic on that front, but who the hell knows uh, at, at this juncture. Um, so, I mean, you know, hopefully we can kind of uh, capitalize on this and, uh, you know, do something similar moving forward. But uh, I really enjoyed it today. I will say that, Anthony. Yeah, absolutely, Bob. Let's hope uh, we can do a couple more of these before uh, baseball returns and hopefully we get some semblance of a season. Um, Although it's looking more and more like it's going to be that 50 to 60 game range um, than the 72 to 80 game range, which we were hoping for. But uh, looks like we're going to get something. Um, but until that time comes, uh, I think we're, uh, we're you know, we're, we'll just try and do the best that we can uh, to provide good content here on Crossed Up. So uh, for Bob Wankel, 
I'm Anthony Sanfilippo. I want to say thanks for tuning in uh, and listening to the Brett Myers interview, and we'll see you again next week.